like the American dream, right? It's like you, you spend your life working for your retirement. Golly, what a lot of shit, man. I would tell young Lori to slow down and allow the season to do its work. Don't say healthy, don't say happy. Don't say well, and don't say normal. You show me one person on the planet who's healthy, happy, normal, and well. Who is that person? Is there something good that can be gained quickly? I don't know. Guys, welcome back to the Ansense Podcast. It is uh, the beginning part, or maybe the middle of your week, and we hope it is going well as we accelerate towards the end of the year here in the Ansons universe. Relevant point for this podcast, if you have not yet seen the Ansons print, the hard copy edition of Ansons magazine, which we've mentioned quite a bit, it will become relevant as things go on here. We asked our friend... Wookie Jones, uh, friend and colleague, as you will see, somewhere near the end of this podcast, to come on simply to have a conversation out of another young guy's story uh, whose life looks, at least to us, pretty interesting. And yet, anytime you unpack one of those, it's kind of helpful to show how anyone started to live uh, successfully in the direction of any dream. So, Wookie who is on right now and is hearing his own intro, which we don't normally do, is, among other things, a designer, a coffee shop owner, a, uh, a man with a stable of motorcycles, something that makes Sam and I uh, excited and slightly jealous. And beyond those things, he also wears a lot of flannel. So we're excited <laughs> to have Wookie on the podcast and unpack a young guy's story. Wookie, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, wow, Blaine. Uh, thanks a lot, man. I I kind of just like to leave it there. Man, just drop the mic. You're like you've said yeah. everything. Yeah, I think that I think that about sums it up. Oh, good. This would be a short one. I guess then there's only one outstanding question, which is, how did you come to be called Wookie? All right, fair enough. So, um, you know, when I was in college, I had um, a story that I told that. Um, when people would ask me this, I would say, well, do you want the good story or the true story? So, Blaine, I'm going to ask you, do you want the true story or the good story? Could I have both? Okay, let's do that. So uh, let's start with the good story. So the good story is um, I was in um, the lower uh, Republic of the Congo at the time, and um, I was working humanitarian work in a village and a rival tribe came into the village. Really, they took all the children while the women were watching. And I was laid up with malaria at the time. So I was out, was not out with the men hunting and gathering. And as they were carrying the children out of the village, I, I heard the screams and the yelling. So I, uh, I, I hobbled over to my machete, crawled out. And, you know, I, I took care of the problem, brought the children back. And as I was carrying one of the children back to her mother, the mother said, Angawa, Ana, Wana, Wookie, which is to say, you are the great hero. And like ever since then, I mean, it just really kind of stuck. Oh, my gosh. That's an amazing story. That's yeah. 
So, I mean, in the true story, it's not as interesting. So you'll kind of understand why I came up with that. Um, the true story is my parents were watching uh, Return of the Jedi on TV when I was, you know, I don't know, a couple weeks old, something like that. I really don't remember. And um, they said, that baby sounds like one of those Wookiee creatures. And it just stuck. Wait, so it's it's nothing at all like the good story? Nothing at all. There's really no overlap there. Did, have you ever been to the Congo? Just so I know. No, man. No, I have. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Thank you for that. Wow. Oh, that's a load off my mind. Yeah. I think the next thing that I'd like to know, just uh, sort of continuing in order of interest, how did you develop your relationship with motorcycles? Yeah. So that I kind of backed into that too. So I remember, you know, being ten or eleven. And just kind of getting obsessed with cars. I really, you know, motorcycles were cool, but um, never really caught my attention much. And so through high school, I read Hot Rod Magazine, Car and Driver, um, was always like keeping up with cars and uh, classic cars, trying to identify cars. But when I turned 15, you know, got my temporary license, I was all excited about what kind of car I was going to buy. And my dad told me, you know, like, you really need to be saving for college. You can drive the family Pontiac Bonneville when I'm not using it. But in the meantime, you know, I don't want you spending your money on a car. And I was crushed. You know, that was my dream was to drive, you know, a, a Pontiac Fiero or something, or some, some other terrible first car. And um, turns out my neighbor down the road was selling an old motorcycle, a, a 1978 Kawasaki KZ750. Didn't run. Um, was pretty crusty, been sitting for 20 years. I'd go over and visit the bike every day, sit on it, you know. And finally, one day, I just wrote him a check for 500 bucks, brought it home, and kind of like showed up with this motorcycle. And a friend of mine from church helped me get it going. Um, and when I say help me, like I went and got tools while he, you know, <laughs> while he got it going, took it apart, reassembled it. And man, I was hooked, absolutely hooked. And I brought that bike to college with me. Uh, I've had it since I've been married. Um, I've got it all cut up and in pieces. Friends helping me put it together again right now. But yeah, that, that was the start. So did you in that process actually learn how to put it back together? Or did you just kind of observe and... Uh... I observed, I mean, and I helped some. But really what it did was it showed me that you can take this apart and you can put it back together. I had pretty much no mechanical experience up until that point. And by, by, you know, by any stretch, I'm no expert on it still, but it kind of took that fear of working on something yourself. Totally. Kinda took away. Yeah. I, oh, personally, there's just this, that uh, the ceiling of, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do a few things when it comes to mechanics and engines and all of that, but there's a, there's a threshold that I can't seem to get over. Some people have managed to, and I assume that it requires a lot of grease and probably a jumpsuit, uh, maybe some years underneath a, a few engines. But to get to watch that happen, I imagine took away some of that like forbidden mystique and allowed it to be this thing that you could access, even if it wasn't uh, something that you could repeat. 
I agree. I mean, but like, let me like be clear. I am not above asking for my friends that know a lot more and are good at this to come help me because I would not. I I was in the place a couple years ago where I had eight my motorcycles in the garage and none of them ran and I didn't get to ride all summer. So that's not that's thanks to more having good friends that know what they're doing. Yeah, but you had a garage full <laughs> of my own skill. Motorcycles, but you know, so. I try to keep learning, uh, keep picking away at it, and there's stuff I can do that I you know never thought i would be able to do two questions naturally arise one is if you had to sort of at a glance name your top three favorite motorcycles to ride what would they be and then you can treat these in any order if you could toss to the novice sort of the two to three most important things to learn to do on your own bike kind of the 80-20 of motorcycle mechanics, what would you tell someone to learn first? So my top three favorite bikes are, this is this is out there, it's a, a Honda Ruckus, so a 50cc scooter. Um, that, that I probably had the most fun on that bike of all my bikes. It's legal to ride, what, that's considered a moped in my state, so you can ride that in the breakdown lane. And I would commute to work on that. And I just had a blast, you know, cruising that thing around. Don't those things go for like 500 bucks? Uh, I wish. I think I paid, uh, I think I paid like 1200 bucks for mine. Okay. But yeah, they're, they're like short money. Uh, so that thing was, was a riot. Plus they look so cool, you know, you feel like yeah, a badass. They're cool. And it's just like, I don't know. I, I just didn't care about it that much, but I had a lot of fun on it. Yeah. So there was that. Um, you sort of feel like you're not trying to be cool on it. Um, so, the, which is kind of contrary to my second bike I'm going to mention. And that was my, I had a 1972 Triumph uh, 650 Tiger. Oh, jeez. Oh. Yeah. And so oh my that, gosh. that was like, that was the opposite. Like, you know, there were times I get like, I went to a, uh, motorcycle show down in Cambridge, Mass um, with a friend of mine and he was on a newer Triumph and we were just ripping down the highway and that bike it's not designed to go fast like like a new bike and you know we were doing probably 85, 90 for a, you know for 20, 25 minutes we pull off the exit and we get right into Boston traffic and this thing just overheats in no time so I end up having to push, I have to push this bike over a mile into the show park it and i entered into the show and it's not like i won the show but i got a lot of attention on the bike and you know nobody knows this thing doesn't hardly run so it's always <laughs> oh my gosh it's a, so it's like a metaphor running, yeah, riding home. <laughs> it's the sex yeah. appeal oh yes so riding home like i lost my lights on it um i got pulled over by the cops for the taillight being too dim and i, I was just like Hey man, like it's factory. This is how it works. And he's like, I don't know if I can let you ride home like that. And, uh, you know, it overheated a bunch of times on the way home. So it's like, it's always a story when I was out with that bike, you know, it's, it's got two cylinders that pump at the, or two pistons that pump at the same time. And when you're at a traffic light, the front end kind of bounces a little bit and man, you just feel cool on that. <laughs> That's so awesome. so okay. that, that bike like definitely has a place in my heart. And then fun to ride would just be I, this year I bought um, a new Husqvarna Svartpilen. 
it's a 400. I mean, it's technically a 360 cc single cylinder scrambler, and I've just had a blast with it, man. It's a simple machine, and it reps, and it starts up every time, and um, it's just it's been a riot. So, for you listeners who have no idea what any of these things look like, Google them. Like I didn't know. I'm I'm googling them right now. I'm not going to pretend to like know what the I mean, I don't know how to spell the the fart pillin. You gotta just let your Google Auto search help you out there. But these bikes are so different and so cool. Oh my gosh! Yeah, to sort of give our readers a cue, uh, the scooter looks like a scooter. The Triumph looks like uh, almost any 1970s motorcycle. So the coolest thing you've ever seen. And the fart pillin looks like a Lego motorcycle that you would stick your Lego man on. Because it has sort of a short seat and a really compact frame, and I want it. Okay, what about the other question? Things that you would say, oh, you bought a motorcycle? Well, make sure you can. In the next six months, you're going to learn to X, Y, and Z. Exactly. Or you're not going to ride that motorcycle. Yeah, great. Um, well, first thing would be winterize it. Um, so just learn to winterize it. Take, take your battery out or get a trickle charger. Um, top that tank off with gas, put some um, fuel stabilizer in there. Because otherwise, um, with the ethanol that's in the gas on any small engine, that's going to clog your carburetors or, to a lesser extent, even like your fuel injection system. And they just won't start up next spring when you're ready. So that's like, to me, that's like no-brainer. Even if you're buying a new motorcycle, you need to know that. Would you mention, this, this feels like an appropriate mention. What state are you in? Yeah, fair enough. I'm in New Hampshire, so that's a even a bigger deal than you know for some of your listeners that uh, that probably don't have to deal with Southern that. California listeners, New Mexico listeners. They're like winterize. I don't know what that <laughs> word means. Oh, winter ride. That's what you meant to Perfect. say. Yeah, when you put on the light jacket. Right. Yeah, but anytime your bike's going to be sitting for a month or more, I mean that's that's something you should consider. Yeah. No, I can't tell you the number of times I've let a certain seventy-two. CB500 sit without the aforementioned steps and then gone through the huge pain of ever trying to get it to start again. Fair point. Yeah. So that, um, you know, just oiling, oiling the chain, that's something like, you know, if you have a bike with a chain on it, it'll just save you a lot of wear and tear. It's easy to do. Um, parts are cheap. You should just learn how to do it and then just change your own oil. It's good to get familiar with your bike get used to taking some parts off and you can work your way up to it. It's pretty easy to do. Um, but those are kind of like the, the basic things I'd start with. And you really don't have to call a buddy to come, come bail you out on any of those. Yeah. Those are all actually usable and therefore helpful. I remember it was just, it was a big deal when I could take the seat off my first motorcycle and it was, it felt like a big deal and I could take the gas tank off and, None of, you know, my motor, motorcycle expertise is so elementary, it doesn't even register on the scale, but knowing how to remove and put back on a few parts, it's kind of part of the joy of mastering that machine. I mean, if I could throw one more thing in there, I don't know if that counts, but it's, man, make a lot of motorcycle friends. That's the biggest help for maintaining your motorcycle. And to be fair, there's different kinds of motorcycle people. Yeah. So did you go down to the, you know, the local VA 
find some motorcyclists and befriend them? What was your strategy? Well, you know, what's been the biggest thing for me is, is um, this will probably tie in with the coffee shop, but I started a group on Wednesday nights. So I put out on Facebook and I just said, Hey, I'm going to go down to the coffee shop and I'll ride my bike. If anybody else rides in the area and wants to come meet up, um, that would be cool. And I don't remember that first night too well, but we probably had, I don't know, three or four people showed up, something like that on different bikes. And, uh, we had a good time talking. I didn't even know these people for the most part from there. Let's see. We said like, Hey, want to do this next Wednesday? And those people told their friends they showed up. And so the fun, the funny thing is guys, like I've got a group, we call ourselves the Northeast Moto Society. And, um, you know, in the summertime, we'll have up to 60, 60 something bikes that show up on, on, you know, the road on the car co- at the coffee shop. And, um, it's just awesome. So I have guys that are, yes, they are those like, uh, VA guys on their big Harleys. And I have guys that, you know, only ride crotch rockets and, um, guys that ride, you know, we have a couple guys that show up on forties Indians. It's just, it's a really eclectic group. But my theory is it's just that the motorcycle is just like a common bond because it's people that like to be out in the wind, people that like to be, uh, you know, there's no practical reason to drive a motorcycle. And I think that's what ties, like ties these people together. It's awesome. I feel like that's, that would be such an intimidating thing to do to be like, I mean, I'm not going to go to the local dealership and just start looking for flyers, but to actually like gather around something and not create an in-group versus an out-group of like, this is the X type of writer. And if you're that, then you're not involved or welcome, but it's the actually we just love this thing and this thing brings joy and that's the common bond. And so everybody's, you know, let's go for a ride together. I just don't like being the guy that shows up and goes, I barely know how to put gas in this thing. <laughs> hey everybody. No. Yeah. Cool. Uh, 1972, I think. Mm, I have a tiny penis. Yeah. I don't know shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But doesn't everybody love to tell you what they know? So that's why I think it's easy. Just come up and be that guy and just say like, Hey, what is that thing? That's really cool. And everybody loves to talk about their their toy, you know, or whatever. That's good. That's how I learned about remote control cars when I was eight years old. So, yeah, exactly. We mentioned a bit of your resume earlier: designer, coffee shop owner, motorcyclist. Maybe you could tell us what the right point of entry is into understanding how this happened, how you became a designer with a motorcycle field garage office slash coffee shop owner participant slash who knows what else exactly. I guess, how did this happen? Yeah. I mean, like I said, man, it's going to, it's going to get messy here if you're cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Cause I, I don't even know. So outside of like, you know, I would say like God's got a plan for things and that's just kind of how it's come together um, but you know, some of it's intentional, some is just pursuing, um, interests and opportunities. So with design, you know, I've always been into drawing, but like drawing with pencils and drawing cars and motorcycles since I was a kid. And when, you know, I was graduating high school, I always wanted to be a mechanic. I always wanted to work on bikes or build bikes. Um, but that's not, it's just not 
really like a core strength of mine, whereas designing or drawing was. So when it was time to pursue a career, I, I gravitated towards computers and drawing and ended up being graphic design. I didn't even know what graphic design was, guys. Like, I didn't even know what it was. And so, you know, the first couple of years was I went to college in, in Florida and um, I'm an Ohio boy. I was born and raised in Ohio. So for me, the first two years, I was more interested in being at the beach um, than in class or in the art lab. But um, yeah, for sure. Can't uh, connect with that having gone to school in California at all. There's just some yeah. days where it's just too nice to go to class, man. It's like we be wrong. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't, I didn't put in like my heart and soul into this at all. And it wasn't even necessarily what I wanted to do. I didn't know. But what happened was I started dating my, uh, who would become my wife, Felicia. And I, it kind of started to slowly click with me. I'm not a fast learner, um, but I'm going to have to like, you know, be responsible and, get a, get a career going here and be able to, you know, provide. So that's when I really started to put some effort into my, my work. I don't know how else to say it. Like, God bless. Like if I look at my stuff from when I started out, it's, you know how it is. It's kind of like embarrassing, but I got a job out of college. I kind of followed the expected path. I got a job out of college. We got married that summer. Um, my job was you know, working for a small agency doing um, design for big tech companies. So HP, Microsoft, Intel started at the bottom rung and had a chance to kind of like grow, get a lot of experience. And um, on the side, I always, you know, I'd have friends come up to me and say like, Hey man, would you do a logo? I got this idea. I'm trying to start, you know, or whatever, do that freelance thing. And I did that all along, worked at that agency for seven years, um, moved my way up to creative director, which really wasn't that hard because it's a small agency, but you know, it, it was, it was good. The experience was great before I decided, you know, like I really could do this full time. Like I could do this freelance stuff full time and do it on my own and do it for small businesses and, and small companies that are starting out. And, um, it was just something kind of again clicked with me where I had gotten to the point at the agency where I was like, I could really coast from here. It wasn't that hard. And I was ready for a new challenge. So starting out freelance, man, it was, it was rough. It was, there were times where it was tight. There was times when it was 35 bucks in my bank account. Uh, and this isn't long ago. I've got, I've got kids in the house. So, you know, we definitely took some risk and Felicia supported me, but, um, you know, we bought a house with a shop and that was a dream come true. You know, it's been really cool to watch. God just like provided for us as we've done that. I want to make it clear that it's like, man, like I, it's not like I've arrived. This could all be gone, you know, in, in six months. I don't know. But in the meantime, like, man, like, like I'm living my life today and I'm very happy with it. Um, I don't have any regrets you know, and if I do, I try to address them like as they come up. So that's freelance. Freelance. Like, Wait, I'm just going to, I got to pause you before we move on from freelance. And a couple questions. One is, uh, what was, what were some of the first jobs that you worked on as a freelancer that you really loved? And then 
I'd love to know what is the most recent moment in working as a designer where you felt like maybe this design thing is just going to come to an end. <laughs> or maybe it's going to come to an end. Uh, all right. Well, if we're going to be real here. So, all right. Starting out, um, things that I loved, I would say the first thing that really hit me, I was like, I love this. I could do this was when, and this ties in with, with the other part of the story, the coffee shop. Um, my brother-in-law was starting a coffee shop and I was the natural guy to do the branding. And, you know, I didn't make any, any money on this, but it was building a brand from scratch and building a coffee shop. And really the one thing about my brother-in-law that's really cool is he was just like, you're really good. I like what you do. Just do it. And so I got to do it however I wanted to do it. And, um, that's, that's how we built this coffee shop. So that one, that was about a year before I switched over to freelance, but I would say that was like a, a turning point where it's like, man, like maybe I could do this. This is something I'd like to do. Yeah. What did uh, you name the coffee shop? It's called union coffee company. How did you, how did you decide that name? Just kind of a few, a few things there. And so that wasn't, that definitely wasn't all me. I mean, Derek had a big part in choosing the name. Um, but I told him I loved that there were five letters in the word that worked out well for me um, as far as union. Um, it's on a, a historic town center in New Hampshire. So the, the square there's called Union Square. Um, and then we just loved the meaning of union because that really was the philosophy of the coffee shop was to bring people together, you know, in a central place. So that's kind of how we arrived at, at, you know, union coffee. Awesome. What about the part two? The end so, of your, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if we're going to get into part two, so I mean, part two, like, and this isn't necessarily a design thing. Cause I haven't had any design things where I'm like, Oh, I can't do this anymore necessarily. It's been more of a, that's been more of a process of learning. Like, you know, how do I, Actually, because I love what I do, and sometimes, and I work with a lot of startups, I and get pretty invested in what people are doing. So I need to like, I've learned I need to learn to like bill appropriately, you know, so I can actually make sure I can keep doing this. Um, that's something I've learned over the years. But the the hairiest moment recently was just the business got audited by the IRS. It's just like those painful like learning moments where it's like. Nobody, I wasn't doing anything intentionally to harm people, but I didn't have the right people in place to file my taxes the right way. Um, and it's stuff I just didn't know, but that's the kind of stuff that just really sucks the wind out of your sails. Um, and at least, you know, at least for me where it's like, man, like, could I, should I be doing this? Like, what's the point in like trying to do this? If I just had like a, a normal job, you know, they, they would have been taking care of this for me, but, um, surrounding yourself with the right people, you know, I've got a new accountant. Um, he's been taking great care of me, helping like work through this process. And it's just, you know, that's the kind of stuff that makes you feel like, okay, I can keep doing this. I can keep doing this. It's such a helpful story. I think that a regular experience for, you know, us here is I'll have a conversation with someone, they hear a little bit about what we do and go, oh, wow, that is, that's so cool. How'd you build that? And I just always want to say, 
like, yes, the story is cool. Also, it kind of feels a lot of the time like this thing is barely hanging on. We haven't, as you said, I haven't arrived. There's not the, there isn't a moment where we go, boom, the ball has been thrashed straight through the hoop, and now we just get to sort of coast on the stable infrastructure we've built. It's like, no, we, this thing, multiple times, sort of, I don't even know what time frame I'm going to pick, but at least multiple times a year, starts to look like, are these problems going to be solvable? Is all of the work sort of going to, like, run aground on something that we didn't anticipate? And an audit is a perfect example, uh, you know, for us with rolling in the sphere, like, rolling out an expensive project that doesn't seem to land with anyone is another where, you know, we have one film that's now going into its third year of production. That's just become one of those things where we know it's achievable, and yet it's always been something where we go, are we making that classic psychological error where we refuse to acknowledge that something is a sunk cost and we need to walk away? Or is our <laughs> confidence in this project actually appropriate so that we need to keep, even though it's expensive, even though... You know, we lose some sleep over it. It's worth pushing it over the finish line. And that one, you know, which is this series of uh, complex portraits of a wide variety of guys uh, all over the place, is still in a state where we don't know if it's going to work. We honestly don't know if we're going to roll out something and go, here's our heart and soul. We can never predict if people are going to love it and it's going to work. And there's be remiss if I didn't mention one of my favorite uh, quotes about like the creative by which I just mean like the life of putting your heart into your work where the southern writer Flannery O'Connor said you must be like the samurai who are indifferent to being slain in the duel whether you ever get any success or material benefit of your work is of no concern to you the thing is to return to the invisible God, your talent multiplied, and just going, yeah, we're slowly developing the ability to uh, be in truly indifferent, and not saying we don't care. I'm saying we're not crippled by the negative outcomes when projects don't land, but developing the ability to go, crap, that was a really expensive project that we hoped was going to go great, and... Now it did it. Uh, yeah. Returning, yeah. Returning to your business, the coffee shop, and your design, in addition to working on and helping us build our, you know, the layout of our print magazine, you also have done a lot of work on one of two magazines that's the that are the only two magazines we've ever officially recommended to everyone through Ansons, one, of course, being Overland Journal, the other being Iron and Air, who, you know, yeah. besides you, we still don't know anybody over there, but we read the magazine. Uh, How did you well, meet those guys? Yeah. Well, that's through that's through motorcycles. Um, so, like, I've been, which oddly enough, but, like, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been into motorcycles. I've been a big fan, pro- I guess this was going back probably 10, 12 years ago, with kind of the new... I guess what they would call like the kind of the new style of motorcycles where cafe racers were just coming around and stripped down bikes. And I thought like at the time, one of the brands at the forefront was 
um, Deus Ex Machina out of Australia. Right. Um, yeah, I just always like I love their style. I love the bikes they came up with. It just always had like this fresh surfer look to it. Um, and so I followed them on Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever. And uh, I came across some posts by this company called Iron and Air. And I happened to see that they were out of Manchester, New Hampshire. And like, <laughs> if you live in New Hampshire, people are ridiculously proud of their state. And I think it's because it's a small enough state that if you see anything from New Hampshire, you're like, oh, like I must know them or I'm going to. So I told my wife, like, oh, can you believe this out of Manchester, like out of Manchester, New Hampshire? And at the time I was like, you know, I, I was say in terms of like churning with my job because I had that like internal churning, like I want to be doing something bigger than email campaigns about a Hewlett Packard printer, you know? So yes, the thought of like doing something with, uh, with motorcycles was really, really exciting to me. So I reached out to them and sent them an email. I was like, Hey guys, like, I love what you guys are doing. Like I'm in town. I just want to say like, you know, I'm happy to see like good design work coming out of New Hampshire. And, um, cause they had developed a beautiful magazine and a cool brand. I'm trying to remember exactly how this all came together. I have a, a good friend of mine that's in his, you know, early seventies and he's got just a mess of motorcycles. Well, it turns out the iron and air, the guys came and shot some of his classic motorcycles and they were having like a, a meet and greet party at a new speakeasy bar that was opening up in Manchester and, my friend Larry invited me to the, you know, to the, the party. And so I went and I met, I started talking to the guys. I met the creative director there, Adam Fitzgerald just was blown away. He's a super nice guy. Um, really talented guy, humble guy. And, um, we just kind of hit it off, met a couple of the other guys from, from the magazine. It's a small crew as well. Kind of like they make it kind of like the same as you guys do, you know, you make it seem like a, a big production, but it's a small team. And, um, you know, so we kind of hit it off, but that was it. Um, once I started that motorcycle group at the coffee shop, um, I had a, before I went freelance, I had bought a 1972 Chevy K5 Blazer. Um, <laughs> I drove it back from Missouri to New Hampshire. Great adventure. Maybe not like the most solid plan ever, but, um, I, so I had this truck I had sold it at this point. I'd already sold it to a friend of mine, but he let me borrow it. And I was like, you know, what would be cool. Throw my, my, uh, my 79 Suzuki PE 250 dirt bike in the back of it and show up at bike night. And so I pulled it up to bike night and was talking to some of the guys, some of the regulars there. And, um, a couple of the guys from iron and air showed up and they were like, Oh man, this is sweet. Can we like do a photo shoot? Like, that'd be really cool to get these, uh, in the magazine. And, you know, of course I was happy to do that. So during that photo shoot, we just kind of hit it off. I would say is probably the thing, like just getting to know the guys. And, um, you know, they had a few changes at the magazine over the course of that winter and the next year. And they called me and said, Hey man, we want to talk to you about some stuff. So I went in last, I guess this would be two years ago. And I went in, uh, to meet them at their office and they were like, Hey, like we've had some, uh, turnovers, some things changing. Um, there's basically there's opportunity to do some design. If you'd be interested, we'd love for you to consider it. And so I was blown away, man. That was like my dream, you know? Yes. That's insane. So, so what maybe are 
some of the top two, three articles you've gotten to work on at Iron and Air? I'll, I'll twist that a little bit if you're cool with it. Yeah, um, yeah. Not so much because the articles are fun and I have enjoyed laying out the articles. Um, and I, so I'll come back to that. But part of it's like my favorite project was taking their magazine because they're a small company. They had a look and feel that looked great. Uh, it felt great. Everything was great. But it was the thing I'm, I felt like I could lend to them was helping getting them organized. And so I was able to set up within InDesign all the paragraph styles and um, make it so that we could duplicate this and make this process more efficient in the future, uh, set up structuring for folders. So in that sense, I kind of got the nerd out on how to build this in a better way because the product was already excellent. Um, and to be honest with you, that's what I tell Adam. Is like, I feel weird because I feel like you're a better designer than me. So I feel weird to like be doing your design, but I know like I can help get things organized and make things better. Like from a technical aspect, as far as easier to read, um, easier to, to process the information. And so that was my first favorite project was kind of like rebuilding that initial issue I worked on with them and, and the layout and systematizing it. Yes. That's a way better answer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wish I had some like solid, you know, I did, I did like to get like, sometimes it let me do like a really weird uh, cover photo, something real trippy. I love that because that's just not something you get to do with corporate clients or even a lot of small business stuff. So that was fun working with photographers, like excellent photographers. It's really cool to see like you can tell night and day between like a quality photographer once you bring it into layout. Because then you see like, oh man, this guy left me room for like white space. He gave me different like composition and placement. And I really, I just enjoy like nerding out on that stuff. It's clear entrepreneurship, sort of some taking opportunities, but also serial risk taking has been a part of this whole process. Yeah. What are some of the things to the young guy who's also early in kind of the maybe freelance or maybe the entrepreneurial track. What are some like lifestyle tips, some advice that you would give to that person? Not necessarily in how to start a coffee shop, but to go, oh, you're going to live, you know, the the freelance life. Well, here are some here are a couple things to help you survive the freelance life. Yeah. Um when I'm making decisions on those, a lot of times what I'll do, so one, I guess it's a statistic. I couldn't give you the source, but it really impacted me. So I may be basing all of this decision-making on faulty information. So let's just like get that out of the way. But no, I remember reading like one of the, um, the biggest regret that men have at the end of their lives what is that they had not taken more risks was something that I, I read. And, um, I just remember that like really like hitting me because it was like, will I regret not doing this? And that at the end of the day, that's what it was. Cause I was like, yes, I would regret sitting in this like comfy job at, you know, at my cubicle, like really doing like floating by making decent money. Yes. I would regret that because I felt like I was having the kind of 
compensate for that because I wasn't like giving it my all. So, so that was like the first thing, like be willing to take risks, like look at like, how will I look back on my life or how do I want to tell my story to my kids or my grandkids? So that's like, that's kind of the first thing. Another quote that just like always has resonated with me is that fortune favors the bold. And I just, I just love that because I think how, how do you expect to gain a return on no risk? So you got to put it out there. I'm not saying you're going to succeed because you take risk, but you certainly won't succeed if you don't take risk. Wow. And then, yeah. So kind of the last thing would just be just plan on working harder than everybody else. And that's honestly like, that's what I, that's what I do or, you know, as hard as I possibly can, I'll work at what I do and always be refining that. And you just can't, you got to learn like the, to let go of the fear of failure and more just say, all right, like I'll fail and then I'll keep going. At least that's what I tell myself. Makes me wonder in view of that paradigm, what would you name as one of the hardest risks to take even, you know, last, last few years when you think about your own risk taking? Yeah, man. So the, for me, it's, uh, and this is even, this happens occasionally where I have to be encouraged on this, but it was, um, for me, like I feel I'm a, I have three kids at this point. So for me, I can start to think like my job is to provide for these kids and provide for my wife and provide for my family, a safe living and like balance this with like super hard work and a lot of hours with a rich, full life, meaningful life and giving them the appropriate time. So there's that. But then even like as financial struggles have come up or difficulties to feel like I'm not, I was sitting down with a friend of mine, even dude, even, even last week. So I'll just be totally transparent there. So like, man, it's just tough. Cause sometimes I feel like I'm failing. Like I'm supposed to be providing for these people. Like I gotta have like a certain, you know, standard living for them. And if it's not that, you know, my wife told me two weeks ago, she's like, I don't care. Like if we had to move, like we'll move, like whatever, if we have to change our lifestyle, as long as we're all together and we're healthy, like, you know, you really can't complain about that. So I was saying to my friend, like, I feel like I'm failing at this. And he said, he looked at me in the eyes and I know his history. And he said, dude, that's not failing. He's like, you know, what's failing? Like failing is leaving your wife and kids and moving away a couple of states away and not being an active part of their lives. That's failing. And it's just like, man, that like, just like smacked me. Like, what are you thinking about? Like, this isn't failing. So I think that was like a, you know, that was a, a big one. Man, that's just huge. Yeah, it's easy for me to like take on that responsibility and think I'm the one making this happen. And really it's not. Like I, I take opportunities as God provides them. I try to make the most out of them. I make mistakes in the meantime with them, but it's like, uh, I guess it's a, a faith that <laughs> despite that God's going to bless me, you know, man, just having your attention directed to the important outcome is visible in the people closest to you, wife, kids 
you know, my wife is the same way where the outcomes that I'm concerned with have to do often with reliability, uh, sustainability of basic resources and money and and time and et cetera, et cetera. And not every husband-wife duo is like this, reflects these characteristics. But similar to your story, it's just not her concern. Concern is like uh, the quality of our love together and what that actually means for what we're able to create for our daughter. And it's just this like, oh my gosh, what I'm stressed about a lot of the time barely registers as a value for you, if it registers at all. No, exactly, man. Exactly. Yep. And, and I, I like to take that burden on so she doesn't have to think about that. But it is funny. Like part of it's just a value. I agree. So we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that you also did the layout for the new Ann Sons print magazine. And my question about that, which sort of frame for our audience, you know it exists and it's cooler than you think is what I'll tell you guys. But what would you name is one of the top creative problems to solve in building the Anson's magazine in the way that you did for us. Okay. Um, well, the top creative problems, it was more, I guess it was, how do we translate what has in the past been a blog where you're getting one post, you know, maybe, uh, you know, hopefully a, a week or a month or whatever, like a regular post that kind of gives the entire flavor of the magazine. And how do we turn that into a magazine format where you may sit down and read two or three different articles back to back. And so we kind of had to like pull together and you guys were a huge, huge part of that, obviously, but just like giving a different flavor to each piece so that it comes together without all feeling the same. I think that was probably the biggest creative challenge as far as like looking at the magazine, not from an article by article level, but from a, overarching you know how do we adam taught me this from iron and air saying like i look at it like you're putting together a music album so you're putting together an an album we want to have like this this really cool um balance and like a different tone from article to article and so like, I think that was the challenge and I feel like we got a great, um, first stab at it on this, the, you know, the way this turned out. Yeah. It just, one of the things, one of the questions that you brought that was helpful for us in creating this artifact w- was that idea of creating an experience and, and it, one of the things you bring up in our meetings was how do we let this thing breathe? How do you know? Because so much, as you said, so much of that online channel was the sort of the worldview, the meat of the content over and over and over again. Because that one article might be the only thing a person reads, and changing that to how do you let this thing like feel like a magazine that you could read all the way through without getting bogged down or getting a headache? And it's such a it's a radically different experience to 
move through an experience that's designed to let the reader breathe and relax as it sort of ebbs and flows through, making, you know, part of the appeal of a hard copy thing is that exact experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's that's the exact way to say it is, you know, how do we go from like a light, a light topic and then like the next one we're going to jump into something that's maybe a little bit humorous and then the next one's going to be like this heavy philosophical, you know, theological piece or something. Um, and, and I think, I think we nailed it and I'm looking forward to like even, even more of that coming in. So given that eclectic feel. Yeah. Love that. Wookie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast this morning. It's been great. Oh, my to- pleasure guys. And man, if pe- pe- folks are in New Hampshire, I feel jealous of them because they can look up your coffee shop. Otherwise, there are a lot of places they can find your design work. Do you maintain like a digital portfolio of your work? Or are you sort of uh, concentrated in the areas of the various magazines and businesses where you put most of your effort? Yeah, I mean, I do I maintain it? Not necessarily, but if a client asks me for samples, I have, you know, I do have a website. It needs to be updated. Um, but exactly i mean it's the cobbler has no shoes but um yeah i mean if people want to they can look it up on wookiecreative.com um look me up on facebook wookie.jones or uh i mean on instagram and then um yeah definitely stop by the coffee shop union coffee company in milford new hampshire (laughs) 